0: This is A Propensity to Talk Density, a podcast from the experts at Bell Geospace. Hello and welcome to A Propensity to Talk Density brought to you by the experts at Bell Geospace. I'm James Kent. Today, we are focusing our attention on airborne survey operations and I'm excited to welcome Mark Bagley, On to the show. Mark is the project director worldwide for Bell Geospace. Mark is a geophysicist hailing from the UK. Mark, it's a pleasure getting the chance to speak with you. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good, thank you, James.
0: We're going to jump into our main topic in just a moment, but first, Mark, tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming a geophysicist and your path to Bell Geospace. Is this something you always wanted to do? How did you become interested in this field?
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, it, it, to be honest, it was never something that was uh, particularly on my radar um, from, from a young age. I can't say I was uh, dreaming about doing this when I was 10 years old. But I did a a university degree at the University of East Anglia in geophysical sciences. And then I kind of fell into a year in industry with a marine survey company called Guardline and kind of found a niche in doing quality control and reporting on, on their survey data. And then I moved to Bell in about 2013 and I've been... I moved to the field crew initially, so on on our aircraft going around the world, and then I moved to the office in 2015 and started doing more of the office-based side of our work.
0: So to get us started, uh, let's walk through the day-to-day operations of Bell Geo Surveys. What does a typical day look like, and what types of surveys are you doing?
1: So the types of surveys are, they're going to be um, the geophysical surveys done from an aircraft, uh, and they're looking for um, they're essentially mapping geology, and we do that for oil and gas customers, um, mineral customers. Uh, so, looking at the the makeup of the subsurface, or um, some new, newer fields, are things like geothermal energy. So, the kind of the the exciting bit of it is all the stuff that happens in the field when when we actually go and fly and collect data, and that kind of day-to-day operation involves um, a couple of pilots who will get up in the morning, they'll look at the weather um, and see where we should be flying for that day, say if there's you know a bit of the survey which looks better than, than others. Um, and they'll talk to our operators who are in the field and they'll make a decision on where they're going to fly. They'll go out to the airport and then they will take off fly to the survey area and there's there's a number of things which happen kind of in there doing you know setting up all the equipment and making sure everything's ready to to collect data in a, in an efficient way and making sure it's as quiet as possible um, in terms of you know electric noise on the plane, things like that. And then they they will go fly in a grid pattern usually. So you fly up and down in lines depending on and those lines are space depending on what the project is they will come back to the airport after they finish finished data collection and then that data gets uploaded to the internet and then we download it in the office and we'll do quality control and, um, and processing on it. And that's kind of the day-to-day for our acquisition operation. And then obviously in, in the office, there's lots of other day-to-day things we do in terms of taking projects from the beginning of the life cycle where you're doing contracts and things like that and then also at the end of projects when we're delivering data. So lots of things happening concurrently, but you know, the the exciting part is in the field when when you get to actually fly and collect the data. Uh, In
0: terms of flying, what height does the aircraft fly at typically, and what equipment are you using to conduct these surveys? So
1: we are flying anywhere from um, 80 to about uh, 300 meters above the ground. 80s um, is our minimum for safety, and that's over land. And in terms of the equipment, we're acquiring full tensor gravity gradiometry as our main acquisition. And then we also acquire gravity and magnetics alongside that.
0: And you use a large DC-3 aircraft. Why do you use the DC-3? Are there, are there features and functionality of the DC-3 that make it more optimal to perform these types of surveys?
1: Yeah, so the DC-3 is, is a great platform for us, mainly because it's just so large in comparison to other aircraft. And that gives us a few advantages. Um, one of the main ones is just the fact that we have the ability to go further. And that means we can stay up in the air for longer if, if the weather conditions allow. And it also means not just enhance uh, productivity on survey but it also means that we can travel further to the survey area which in some cases means that uh, we can overcome obstacles which otherwise we wouldn't be able to so for example in um, a couple of surveys we've done we've actually based in a different country and flown over the border into uh, where we're doing the survey and that can be for a variety of reasons but usually to do with the politics or security um, in in that country. Um, It's also a very stable platform. So it's a a big wingspan um, compared to the body. And it it sounds a bit uh, scary, but you you may have been on a plane and you've seen the wings flexing. um, Yes. And and that will kind of dampen the effect of any turbulence that we get. So you've got the wings taking up those bumps um, instead of, Putting it directly into our equipment and therefore directly into the data. Yeah, so so there's those things, and then also it, it's good in terms of um, capacity for our equipment and uh, the exhaust on the on the engines face upwards, so it's a slightly less noisy platform as well.
0: Cool. Now, a couple of data questions for you. Uh, how much data can be acquired every day on average, and how quickly is the preliminary data available?
1: Yeah, so I'd say, in mean, average is kind of, it's, it's really difficult to say. I mean, on a maximum kind of best case scenario day, we would be looking to acquire 1,200 line kilometers um, offshore, and then onshore, possibly around 800 that is quite a, an optimistic number <laughs> um so we we would probably get less on a typical day maybe around 500 on land 800 over water just because of there's various things that can trip us up mostly due to weather so if we have a really hot day you've got thermals coming up from the ground if it's a really windy day that affects us as well And then there are other operational constraints that we have to deal with, um, with, say, restricted areas and things like that. So location
0: Uh, and conditions will vary it. Exactly,
1: yeah. Uh, And in terms of the data turnaround, we can get interim images out of all of our data acquisition in around 24 hours.
0: When you're doing airborne surveys, what, if any, are the environmental impacts? Obviously, there's the fuel involved, with an airborne survey but what else are we looking at yeah
1: so i mean to be honest not too much the the probably the main thing that people will notice would be the noise from the aircraft and i mean even though we fly quite low uh, we we did a few rough calculations and um, around 100 meters on average is the the height we fly the plane will sound something like a vacuum cleaner so not too loud but obviously it's going to be noticeable and we mitigate that by uh, either ourselves or our clients doing community liaison and telling people that we're going to be flying over them Um, most of the time that's not too much of an issue Um, apart from that there's there's not really much all our equipment is or almost all our equipment is passive Uh, we have radar and kind of other things, but for safety on board. Um, but there's no signals being emitted over and above the usual signals that would be emitted by a plane. And then anything to do with our aircraft operations, we have HSE policies in place to deal with, you know, say spills of fuel or or oil that, that's used in the engines. Um, yeah, but other, other than that, fairly minimal.
0: I was hoping that uh, you could explain the difference between gravity and gravity gradiometry. What's the difference between those two? Yeah, I'll try. (laughs) So- (laughs) Better you than me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, So gravity is um, an absolute measurement. So it's a a measure of usually the vertical component of gravity. So you probably learn about it in school. It's uh, the number that's usually quoted is nine point eight meters per second as the acceleration due to gravity, and that's you being pulled down towards the Earth. It's not a constant, so that changes um, on a on broad level as you go around the world because there's the the Earth is made up of different types of materials. So the gravity component of that will measure just that absolute value, and then gradiometry is. Is a broad term to mean the difference between two measurements essentially, and the gradient is how different those two measurements are. So, if you took a measurement of gravity in one place, and then a measurement of gravity in another place, the gradient would be the difference between them. So that would usually be if 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 you take that example, that's probably going to be on the order of you know several meters between stations um, on a on a ground gravity survey. You'd have someone with a gravimeter moving physically between places. With our system, it's all miniaturized. So, so we measure the gravity gradient between a pair of accelerometers, which is very, uh, very. the distance between them is very small. And then from that, we can give you the gradient in every direction. So there's a vertical gradient, there's a horizontal gradient in, in each direction. And we can build up a picture of the gravity as a field. And in that way, you can get a lot more information about what is under the the surface.
0: Mark, uh, just to dovetail on that, uh, what would you say the advantages are of having the full tensor?
1: Yeah, so um, if you've got, if you're measuring all of the components, you're measuring the vertical gradient um, and both the horizontal components, um, and there are a couple of other ones as well, which are a little bit more complicated. Uh, the information is really useful for geologists because it means that they can delineate the edges of bodies. So in in the case of looking at vertical gradients, you can see quite nicely where, where density changes, but the edges of, of those changes will always be a little bit fuzzy. So having the horizontal information really helps you Kind of pick out targets,
0: and you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the DC three, the the size was important with the equipment on board. Uh, is there anything else on board the aircraft utilized in these airborne surveys? Uh, people should know about.
1: Um, well, I suppose the the thing that I haven't really talked about much is is the magnetic system that we have on board. So obviously, we have the two. We have a gravimeter and we have the full tensor gradiometer. But we also have a magnetic system, which we have running all the time alongside those two. And that's really useful in the interpretation phase, because if you've got something which has, say, a high density um, signal in gravity, then you can rule out that being a number of different things geologically, if it's either a high magnetic source or or not so the so using those two together is very useful right? because gravity and magnetics are what we call um potential field data and all of that data is unfortunately non-unique so we can't tell people what something is without another bit of data to to um kind of guarantee that that's what we're what we're saying so it, the more data the better so we'd like to have those two systems running
0: you know, it kind of brings up a point when these surveys are conducted and we all have all the data collected, what does that give, say, the client in terms of reliability on what they're looking for? And now they have the survey and they know whether or not uh, the area that they've mapped out has or does not have what they're looking for.
1: It's quite different depending on where where you're looking, because we do surveys across a whole spectrum of Um, kind of life cycles of projects so some of the surveys we do will be completely frontier um, and there's no data there at all so a company would ask us to go in and fly something which would be called a regional survey where we do a large area um, wide line spacing and we kind of pick out areas of interest for them to go and do other surveys then on the other side of it you have areas where they already have lots of data. They know exactly what's going on, apart from probably one area which is causing them trouble. could be different reasons for that. Most of the time, we find that what's happened is they have seismic data, but it's not doing what they want it to do. could be lots of reasons for that. Um, But so we'll come in and then we'll give them an extra layer of data to make their decisions easier. Uh, I I suppose I wouldn't, I would never say that our data would be the one thing that they would use to say, yes, there is, you know, nickel here or or oil here or or something like that. But it would, it's always used alongside different other types of geophysical data.
0: So to tie this all together, uh, when you're in the survey planning stages, what decisions need to be made beforehand to ensure optimal results when the actual survey is conducted
1: sure so in as i was talking about before we have the, the kind of frontier um, surveys where they don't they won't have much information at all um and then you have the other end of things where you've got somewhere that a client's been working on for a long time and they have lots of information we can work with both of those scenarios Um, But the more information we have, the better, really, for survey design. So ideally, we would have a seismic section or a geological section to do some feasibility modelling on. And together with the information that the client gives us on what target depths they're looking at, we will do a modelling study and then we'll work out what line spacing is required for those surveys. Then... Once we've got that line spacing, we can design the survey based on the topography in the area, um, country borders, things like that, any restrictions that we need to work around logistically. And then we'll send that to the client, see what they think. And it might be a case of there's an iterative process where they want something different and we can can work with them and, and come up with a final design which should satisfy their needs and be operationally suitable.
0: And as part of that planning process, are there any limitations of the aircraft and the system that need to be considered upfront?
1: Yeah, it's mainly to do with the the system. Um, we have a maximum climb and descent rate on the aircraft. Not for the aircraft, it, it can do a lot more than that. But mainly for the instruments on board. If we climb too fast or descend too fast, then we'll put too much energy through the systems it'll be a more bumpy and then all that turbulence gets put through the instruments and that comes out in the data so that's something that we have to take into account and we we use a process called draping to to take that into consideration where we put those parameters into a computer program and it gives us a surface to fly on if if there's a hill in the middle of the survey the plane will gently climb over the hill uh, instead of going you know, up to the hill and then right up and then right down. Yeah, and I guess the other one would just be the turning circle of the aircraft. On on survey, we have to be fairly gentle with how we turn. So as, as the plane comes off a line and then turns around for the next one, we have to consider that we need a fairly large amount of space to do that. So as I mentioned before, things like country borders or restricted zones, will need to be taken into account.
0: So when Bell Geo is under contract for a survey, from an operational standpoint, what functions or responsibilities does Bell handle versus what the client handles? And are these decisions mapped out during the planning process? Are they fluid or are there kind of a set process in place?
1: It's a difficult question because Every every project is, is different. So I'd say in a way it's, it's very fluid because, you know, depending on where you're on the world, there's going to be vastly different approval processes for, for everything. There's going to be very different ways of doing surveys depending on terrain and all of those things. Um, but then at the same time, even though it's different in each country, we have a fairly rigid structure that we stick to, which is, you know, getting certain different approvals in order and then getting our aircraft in. So we'll usually handle all of the operations in terms of getting the aircraft into the country, um, flight planning, accommodating our crew, and then those those things will, they'll get blended in with uh, what the client does. So in some situations in maybe more Western countries, we will do a lot of that, or or almost all of it. But then in, say, Asia or India, where we work a fair bit, there will be structures in place where we either can't do that or need help from a third party or you know, someone who knows more about it than us. So, yeah, it's, it's a very fluid process, but there are definitely kind of tick boxes that need to be done before we proceed into the country. Uh,
0: Mark, we've just about come to the end of our time together. Certainly the past couple of years with the pandemic, it's proven to be a challenge in all areas. How have you seen operations affected during the past 24 months? What's, what have those two years looked like?
1: Yeah, it's it's been difficult, as you can imagine, with uh, three aircraft flying around the world doing surveys in various countries. It's been um, interesting. I've only got admiration for our field crew and operations department who work out having to get our plane from, you know, one side of the world to the other and flying through various different countries and doing all the PCR tests and you know working out all the quarantine restrictions for each different country. And as they're changing, kind of on a daily basis, so it's it's been a challenge. I think we've done relatively well. We haven't really had any kind of avoidable downtime. I, I say that in in a way that you know there are things that have happened that we we would like to have avoided, but in reality, it's been so difficult to keep up with with all the restrictions and and all the issues that there are that there's there's just been sometimes where we haven't been able to keep our planes flying. But for the most part, it's been surprisingly good in terms of keeping everything working as it should.
0: Mark Baggley, Project Director Worldwide for Bell Geospace. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with me today. If folks want to learn more about the survey work at Bell Geospace and inquire about getting a survey project off the ground, what's the best place for them to go to learn more information?
1: So the best place would be to go to our website at belgio.com. You can go on there look through all of our information, um, more details about our equipment and our surveys. And then you can submit um, a form giving us data to do a feasibility study, as I talked about. Or you can just send us an email through there. Or you could get in contact with us on LinkedIn, um, lots of different ways. So, yeah.
0: Perfect. Mark, thanks again for your time.
1: Thanks very much, James.
0: And thank you for watching this episode of A Propensity to Talk Density, brought to you by Bell Space. And if you're looking to keep up to date on all the latest information from A Propensity to Talk Density, make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'll have more amazing episodes coming your way that you won't want to miss. For now, I'm James Kent. Let's talk again soon.